Last week we began what is going to be a, a pretty extensive study. It's a three-book study on 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We chose three books that, that all begin with the letter T, just for some type of symmetry and balance. But what we looked at and what we, what we addressed in that is said that as we go through these three books, we get a picture of what a church should look like. We get a picture of, of how this church should look, and we get a picture of what the church universal should look like. So not just Ridgecrest's particular manifestation of it, all churches in our community should be a reflection of Scripture. Amen? Amen. And so this morning, we're going to continue on that track. So with the thought and with the theme of creating a gospel-centered community, this morning, Paul presents us in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, of what happens when a problem arises. Now, churches have been around for a long time, and, and if you've been in church any period of time, then you have run into problems, right? I mean, you, you walk into a church, and you sit down in somebody's seat, and they walk by and say, man, I've sat there for 30 years, you're like, I, I, how do you even know it's a pew? I mean, do you get a tape measure out? Measure, you know, 36 inches over, this is where I sit. And so some problems are just, are just silly, I mean, really. Who cares where they sit week to week? I sit up here because it's the closest distance from the stage. But you sit wherever you sit because of the air duct or the lighting or the people around you or whatever it is you do. Those problems are silly. But then we see more insidious problems. We see problems that result around somebody taking money that doesn't belong to them. Somebody allowing sin to run rampant in their life and the church not dealing with it. Right? Because we don't have personal sins in here. We have personal sins which should affect us on a corporate level. We are a body, and so if somebody in our body is doing something that is, that is sinful, we address it on a corporate level. Man, it's painful, it's difficult, but that's what it is to do life together. That's what it is to have a gospel-centered community. It's us coming together and saying we're going to pursue God with all energy, with all vibrance, with all intentionality, and we're going to do it together. And because we're going to do it together, that means we have to deal with sin. We've got to deal with selfishness. We've got to deal with pride. We've got to deal with greed. We've got to deal with all of these things. But something even more dangerous than that is what happens when the teaching is bad. And I'm not just talking about, you know, it's not particularly entertaining or it doesn't keep you awake. What I'm talking about is when the teaching doesn't line up with Scripture. And so we, we take it Firstly, we say, okay, well, it could be the preaching from the pulpit. Does that line up with Scripture? So you've got to know this book. You've got to know the things that are in it. I mean, you should be able to trust, trust the people preaching to you, yes, but you have to know this book yourselves. And then say on the, the discipleship or the Sunday school or the small group or the Bible study level, man, you have to know what is in that book. Or every time you hear someone sound authoritative, you're just going to say, okay, that must be in there somewhere. You've got to know this book. But what we see in Ephesus is that Paul is addressing a situation where people thought they knew the Scriptures. They thought they knew them. But man, they had found one particular area or speciality, and they had dug down so deep in there that they corrupted the gospel. Doctrinal correctness, doctrinal fidelity is so important. We have to dig down deep and know what this book says, know how to apply it to our lives, and we have to be very, very precise. We cannot play fast and loose with our understanding of God's Word. 
Do you understand? All right, well, let's see what happens as Paul goes through and he addresses and offers a corrective. 1 Timothy 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Paul picks this letter up and he gives us a little bit of background in, in, of what the teaching is and kind of the situation around it. And so as he opens up verse 3, he tells Timothy, he says, you remember that as I was going to Macedonia, so Paul's in one location, he is headed to Macedonia and he had told Timothy at that point that he is to remain in Ephesus. Now that's a, that's a pretty open-ended statement, is it not? If somebody tells you, I just need you to remain somewhere, you're like, well, how long? When we were in, in Prague and we were learning language, uh, I didn't realize there's a big difference between verbs that tell people that it's for a set amount of time and verbs that tell people it is for all times. And so we were taking a Czech class, and my language teacher asked me and she in Czech. She said, Matt, where is your wife, or what are you doing? I said, I'm waiting on my wife. And she started laughing. I said, what's so funny? And she said, what you told me is that all you ever do all day long is wait on your wife. <clears throat> what you should have said is, you know, I am waiting for a short time on my wife. And I said, well, I am waiting on my wife. You determine what that means. So Timothy is to remain in Ephesus until he receives other direction from Paul. And he's to do something very specific there. Timothy is to pour himself out, invest himself in the health of that body. He's to invest himself in the health of the body, and he's to do it primarily here in terms of what's being taught. Paul tells him to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And this is pretty interesting. Paul is, is no stranger, he's no coward about calling people out and and calling names. And so if he were to look at this congregation, it wouldn't bother Paul at all to say, Ken Money, just stop. You know, John Ballard, just stop. Carolyn Scott, stop, please. Don't ever sit on that pew again. That wouldn't bother Paul. I mean, that wouldn't be a big deal to him. It'd be a big deal to the people being called out for a couple thousand years because their names are in here, but it wouldn't be a big deal to him. So forever after, people know that Carolyn should never sit there again. But it's not a big deal to him. But instead, it's, it's, it's a widely known thing. It's well known who these people are. Paul doesn't need to call them by name. So when he uses this, this, this indefinite here and says, certain persons, Timothy, you need to go, you need to charge them, Timothy knows exactly who they are. Other people in Ephesus likely know exactly who these people are. And he tells Timothy, he has to charge them to quit teaching a different doctrine. Now, lest you, you think that Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, tell them to quit teaching about the Holy Spirit for a while and 
start teaching a doctrine on ecclesiology. Timothy, tell them to, to stop teaching so much on, on church for a while and start teaching instead on the person of Christ. See, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about different doctrinal things that make up and comprise our whole system of theology. When Paul writes this, and he says, tell them to quit speaking about other do- another doctrine, Paul is telling Timothy, these people are espousing heresy. These people are, are preaching, they're communicating, they're telling you of a gospel that is wholly different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes Timothy and he says these people are engaged in heterodoxy, they're engaged in another doctrine. It is essentially different than the one found in our Bibles. It is essentially different than the one that ends in salvation. It is essentially different than the one that centers on Christ and the cross and redemption. They're not just teaching some different take on how to apply things to your lives. They are preaching and teaching a different gospel. And see, Paul doesn't tell Timothy, Timothy, go in and you know what? Have these people over for coffee. Have these people over for tea, for coffee, and just see if somehow in the conversation you can get them to feel really bad about what they're doing. Have them over, Timothy, and just start talking about true teaching. And, and maybe as a result of that, they'll say, oh my goodness, I've been teaching the wrong thing. I'm not going to do that anymore. Timothy, thank you so much. So Paul lays it out there. He tells Timothy, you go after errant teaching, and you go after it with intentionality. You go after errant teaching, and you go after it with all vigilance. You charge these people not to teach a different doctrine. And we see even how much further that's gone. First half of verse 4, he says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, these people are, are... not just teaching something different, they are devoted to something different. Now, there's a decent chance I offend someone in here, but we can, we can talk afterwards, and you can tell me that, that I offended you, and I can say I'm so sorry, but let's just, let's just go with it for a second, okay? When I was teaching school, I had a student come up to me at the end of class one day, and he said, Mr. Beasley, which always kind of creeped me out. I, my dad is Mr. Beasley, but he said, Mr. Beasley, he said, do you like to take vacations? And this kid was, his parents were wealthy. So I'm thinking, I'm going to get to go on vacation. Not where the conversation was going, but that's where I thought it was. He said, Mr. Beasley, do you enjoy taking vacations? Absolutely. Love vacation. He said, Mr. Beasley, do you you like nice cars? I said, man, I don't drive one, but I like them. He said, Mr. Beasley, do you, do you like, you have hobbies? Do you like to go hunting? I was like, you know me so well. And so he starts talking about all these things that, that I could do. And all these things that, you know, asking me, do you like this? I'm like, absolutely. Do you like nice clothes? A pair, you know, somewhat. Do you like, you know, this? Do you like that? I'm like, absolutely, absolutely. He said, well, then I have a business proposition for you. He said, how would you feel about selling soap? How would you feel? And so he started trying to sell me on, on Amway. And this guy was was devoted to this. I mean, he didn't just take this as a hobby. It's 17 years old. He was already on the way to building his pyramid. He was already on the way to building his fortune. 
His parents had modeled for him what success in this could do. They had the biggest house on the lake. They had a full basketball court, a full tennis court outside. They had a movie theater in their home. They had modeled what success looked like if you were willing to give yourself, if you were willing to be devoted to this. And so every waking hour he spent trying to think of how he could get one more sucker, I mean one more teacher to sign up and to sell products underneath him. You see, these people aren't devoted to this. They're not just casually invested in this errant teaching. It resolves around every area of their lives. Paul says they are devoted to myths and endless, endless genealogies. So we get some understanding of, of what heresy is going on here. Paul doesn't explicitly lay it out and give us ad infinitum understanding of what exactly is going on, but he gives us a picture of it. It involves myths. Paul doesn't just say, charge these certain peoples not to devote themselves to half-truths. He says, charge these people not to devote themselves to lies. See, Paul doesn't say, hey, look, part of what they do is good. But they go wrong here, here, and here. Instead, Paul characterizes their entire teaching, and he says, it is myth. It is false. There's no semblance of the truth, no, no shred of the truth, Everything they say is contrary to what is found through God's revealed will in Scripture. He characterizes it as myth. And then we see that they're, they're playing with genealogies. And so if you read through the Old Testament, you see so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. And so they are taking these and somehow holding them up to the sun just so to see either themselves or another leader as important as found in their reading of some speculative genealogy. They didn't have a whole lot of great hobbies going for them, apparently. And so that's what they're doing. They're devoting themselves to these lies, and they're devoting themselves to these genealogies. And this is what Paul says comes of it. This is what Paul says is produced from their endeavor. Their devotion promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, their, their endeavor, their devotion, their preaching doesn't do anything positive. It promotes speculation. What they're doing stirs up disunity. What they're doing stirs up other people to look at the same thing and to make bold assertions about what they think is truth. But it doesn't do anything to promote holiness. It doesn't do anything to unite the body. It doesn't do anything to promote and put forward Christ. It promotes, it produces speculations. It promotes falsehood. It promotes this understanding that, that is contrary to God's Word. And Paul shows us that it is working against the gospel. The second half of that, he says, it produces speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Now let's talk about that for a second. You see, as, as we preach, as we learn, as we dig in and study and investigate the Word of God, what it should do is not promote speculation. It shouldn't pr promote this mindless babble and, and discussions that don't go anywhere. What it should produce is stewardship from God that is by faith. That stewardship, it should promote the plan of God. It should promote this understanding that we are placed as managers and in, in, in working in and among God's will. 
You see that as God has, has poured out himself in his, his ways, in his course, in his direction for the way things should be and the plan for salvation, he gives that to us. We know what that is, and we are placed as stewards and managers and dispensers of that truth. See, we're entrusted with the gospel. That's one of the things that Paul writes over and over again to Timothy. He says, guard the deposit. You and I have been entrusted with the gospel. In salvation, God entrusts us with the gospel. And what we're meant to do is to be good stewards of that. And so as good stewards, we're not taking it, burying it, locking it up. But we are giving it away as quickly as possible. We're giving it away as often as possible. We're giving it away as carefully as possible. See, God has entrusted with us the gospel. And he's placed us as stewards of it. And so the question you have to ask yourself when you hear teaching is, does that teaching result in speculation or does that teaching result in promotion of the gospel? The result in making you a better steward of the gospel. And then it, it leads you to ask this question of yourself, am I being a good steward of the gospel? Or are you a selfish steward? Are you just taking what you've been entrusted with and you're carefully concealing it and, and holding it in and saying, I can't let anything happen to this? Are you treating the gospel as it's some fragile thing instead of some fire that is in you that is contagious, some fire that is in you that spreads to all things that you encounter? Are you allowing it to be hidden or are you, are you trying to share it? Because, friends, it is an un, it's, it's a light that can't be hidden. And the light of the gospel shining through your life should shed light in all the dark areas of the world. It should go to Honduras, it should go to the Philippines, it should go to Prague, it should go to Greenville, Texas. That light that is in you as a steward should be evident in you when you go to Walmart or when you go to Brookshire's. It should be in you when you go to work and when you go to Rockwall. It should be in you when you're parenting your children, when you're relating to your parents, when you're engaging with people on the street, when you're going up to the cop that just pulled you over because you're speeding. That's how prevalent that light should be. Because you're placed, you're entrusted, you're a steward of the gospel. And it is from God and it is given by faith. So it's not something we engender, it's not something we create on our own. God has given us the charge to be a steward. And he has given it to us by the gift of faith. And then Paul completely shreds their teaching apart. He's talked about their teaching. He said it leads to speculation. It leads to a false gospel. But, but Timothy, the aim of our charge, verse 5, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, hey, look, the aim of their charge is to promote these endless genealogies and these myths, lies and lists of names. But Timothy, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is, is love. The, the aim of our charge is, is to show the love of God to those we encounter, to show what the love of God has afforded to those we encounter. Timothy, the, the aim of our charge is to explain John 3.16. The aim of our charge is to, is to tell people that God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son. 
so that we wouldn't suffer the consequences of sin and death and be internally separated from God, but so that we might know God. Timothy, the charge of God in our lives is this. It's to explain the love of God. And the fact that while we were yet sinners, while we were alienated from God, while we were moving away from God with all speed and haste, that God interjected himself in our lives and saved us in spite of ourselves. Timothy, the aim of our charge is love. And then Paul gives us three modifiers from it. He says, it is love from a pure heart. Now, this isn't just some type of idea of, of nobleness or, you know, where we say, oh, you know, my heart is pure. When I tend to think of this, I think of the Care Bear characterization of, you know, brave heart, which I think was a lion. We shouldn't go there. But, but it's this idea that we have a purified heart. Now, this isn't something we've done on our own. We don't stay up late at night trying to purify our own heart. There's no dietary supplement that you, can, that you can pick up at Whole Foods or some other grocery store that will give you a pure heart. You know what gives you a pure heart? An encounter with the Holy God. Because God demands absolute purity, absolute perfection. So in salvation, he purifies our hearts. In salvation, when he applies the light of the gospel to our hearts, it burns away all impurity. It burns away the stain of sin. We are no longer alive to sin, but as Paul writes in Romans, we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Amen? It is love that stems from a pure heart. He said it's love that stems from a good conscience or a clear conscience. This, this love that we have, that we've been trusted as stewards of, that we are dispensers of, stems from a purified heart, and it stems from a good or clear conscience. This is, as I evaluate my life, as I look at my life, that my external testimony through my mouth lines up with my internal testimony in my mind. Every part of who I say I am, I am. Every part of who I communicate myself to be is a reality based upon my understanding in my discrimination of myself as I evaluate my life. I have a good conscience. You've probably met some people that are plagued with a bad conscience. There's something in their life they just can't get over. Some mistake they made as a child, some way their parents treated them, some decision they made when they were in college or early on a job, or some infidelity they committed against their wife. And so they had this secret, this thing held over in their life that is obstructing their ability to have a good conscience. They won't let it go. They continue to struggle and struggle and struggle. Paul describes our love and says that our love stems from a clear or a good conscience. From a clear or a good conscience can't get that on your own you can't create that on your own so we go to God we ask God to forgive us our transgressions to forgive us our sins to enable us to repent to turn away we recognize the fact that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ we have a clear and a good conscience because the work that God has done and is doing daily hourly moment by moment in our lives this love stems from a pure heart, a good conscience. And lastly, from a sincere faith. Now, as you look at this word sincere, the word Paul chooses to use here, 
is unhypocritical. Your translation might render it that way. And this is a better picture of what Paul is trying to get at. It's an unhypocritical faith. You see, because these people that are going in and they're, they're teaching on these myths and these endless genealogies, what does it produce? Mindless babble speculation. But when we go in and we proclaim love, what does it produce? Not disunity, not, not you know, breaking apart the fellowship of the body, but what it produces is unity. What it produces is holiness. What it does is glorify God and lift up Jesus. So Paul says our love, lastly, is characterized as stemming from an unhypocritical faith. The things I say, the things I think are demonstrated in the way that I live. So God has purified our hearts, he has cleansed our minds, and he equips us to live out the gospel in the marketplace. He equips us to live it out beyond the 90 minutes every Sunday morning. He equips us and he calls us to unhypocritical faith. And it calls on you and it calls on me to evaluate our lives. Is the cry of our heart lived out in the demonstration of the way that we enter the workplace? Is the cry of our heart and understanding of the gospel lived out in the way that we relate to our spouse, to our children, to our nieces and nephews and parents, co-workers, employees, everybody, everywhere, at all times? To be unhypocritical is so difficult. Because the slightest misstep, the slightest miscalculation we realize that we are back in hypocrisy. So it is a call to remember our frailty. It is a call to remember our dependence upon God for his strengthening and our encouraging. So Paul juxtaposes these two things. He says, on the one hand, you've got the liars and the genealogy folks. On the other hand, you have the people promoting the true gospel. And their charge and their aim is a communication of God's love. And then in verse 6, he comes back, and he goes back after those folks again. He says, certain persons, the ones I spoke to you earlier about, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. He says, certain persons. Everybody knows who these folks are. You see, they all remember coming to faith together. They remember the stories about what it was like when, when, when Paul and Timothy came to town. They remember... When Demetrius ran Paul out of town, they remember all of these stories that center around the work of the gospel in Ephesus. And so when Paul writes, he says, certain persons, they have swerved from these, and they have wandered away. See, it's pulling into their minds that, yeah. And so they start thinking on the characteristics that Paul has described love as having. And they said, I remember when so-and-so was struggling with this sin. Or I remember when he first began to be engaged in this teaching. And what they see is, although they started in the same position and it appeared that they were headed toward the same goal, at some point in the process, these people started chasing errant teaching as opposed to the true word of God. You see, they swerved away from love from a pure heart. They swerved away from love from a good or clear conscience. They swerved away from a sincere faith. They swerved away from these things. And the result is that they are now wandering into vain discussion. 
They're wandering around and having these fruitless conversations about nothing that takes you nowhere. The gospel that Paul puts forward results in salvation. The gospel that they put forward, which is another teaching, which is wholly separate from this, results in nothing. You are lost and you stay lost. In the verse 7, Paul gives us a nice picture of, of more of their characteristics. He says, these people desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They desire to be teachers of the law. Now, this is, this is kind of interesting. We saw a, a glimpse that their teaching involves some type of Old Testament understanding in the beginning, right? Genealogies. Paul's cueing us in a little bit that that's what it has to do. But here, we're tempted to think in some ways, or we get an idea that they desire to be teachers. They desire to be teachers of the law. Now, there's some question as to whether or not they actually want to teach the law, or they just want to be known as those who teach the law. Do you catch the, the, the difference there? And so, on the one hand, one calls for you to do some work. You actually have to stand up in front of people and you have to communicate something. The other one, it just has you be known as somebody that has this job. They want to be known as someone in the community. They want to be respected. They want to be well-liked. They want to be looked up to. I think that's why Paul gives us the understanding that this is a vain discussion. They want to be teachers of the law. But look how far they've fallen. Man, they don't understand it. They don't understand the things that they're saying or about that which they make confident assertions. You see, their lack of certainty, their lack of understanding about the Word of God does not impact their ability to be bold, their ability to be confident. They've created false confidence in something that they don't even really understand, but they say it all the more often and with all the more strength. You see, the difficulty today is we see Bible teaching all over television, I mean, I don't have TV anymore, but there are, when, we, when we did in the glory days, there were any number of channels where you could go on. And, and the interesting thing is, one moment you catch Billy Graham, and he'd be on this great crusade you know, right after the fall of the, of the wall, and he'd be entering into, in, into communist country. And he'd be proclaiming the gospel, and these people are hearing the gospel, many of them for the first time, and we see this great outpouring of the Spirit of God, and these people are coming to faith in the thousands. And we see that, and we're like, that is amazing. Within the telegram, the, the TV programmer has that followed by a program that is so off base, that is so completely opposed to the true gospel. And so we see Billy Graham one moment, and then we see Benny Hinn the next. We see Billy Graham one moment, and he's espousing the gospel, and then the next moment we see somebody who's just a little bit further away, and, and, we, and we are tempted, if you don't know anything about the Bible, to equate one with the other. See, false teaching has crept in. It is here. It is in our community. It is on our TVs. It is over the radio. And our charge is to understand this book. Our charge is to understand the Bible. And friends, i got to tell you, if you're not invested in studying deeply, in studying broadly, 
you're going to be led away for what sounds the most appealing to you. As we uncover and we dig into the harder truths of Scripture and we begin to reflect upon what God calls us to in our lives, when we realize that it is for us to pick up our cross, to follow Him, to daily die to ourselves, to live lives of total submission unto the Lamb of God, when we start looking at these things, we're tempted to say, you know, I really just want to be blessed and have a good parking spot instead. Which church can I go to to get that? See, our hope and our desire is that our teaching always lines up with 100% correctness with God's Word. But what is on you is to dig deeply and dig often into God's Word so that you can tell what lines up with what you hear and what you read. Parents, and this means that you need to be pouring into your children how to discern the truth of God's Word. I mean, you model for your families how important you think correct teaching is. And I, I got news for you. If you think that, that dragging your kids to church is good enough for you, then they're going to become teenagers. They're going to go off to college. They're going to do whatever. And they're going to follow your pattern of active involvement, just showing up. If you really want this thing to mean something to your kids, then it's got to mean something to you. And this is especially difficult for dads. Because the way that God has set things up, the way that he has orchestrated, he hasn't set it up where we can kick it all to our wives to allow them to be the spiritual nourishers and encouragement to our families. That God has entrusted with the health, spiritual health of the family with the husband. He has entrusted the spiritual well-being of the family with the man. Man, that calling is so high. And we got to show our kids that we care what this says. we got to show our kids that, that it means something to us in the way that we treat their mother, in the way that we treat them, in the way that we speak. And so maybe you look at it and you say, man, I don't have any kids, and that's, whew, I'm so glad because that's so difficult. You see, we are all a part of the family of God as it's manifested here in, Rich, at, in Greenville in Ridgecrest. And you need to be pouring yourself out to those that don't have a father figure. You need to be pouring yourself out into those who don't have anybody looking after them. You've got to model that this means something. Because if you don't, then you're living a hypocritical faith. And what Paul calls us to is to live a sincere, unhypocritical faith. To take up the charge of the word and to advance the gospel. He tells Timothy, he says, the aim of our charge is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith that is by God. Oh, that that would be our prayer. Let me pray for us.